This is a reading from Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to you. I do, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Amen. You may be seated. Should you pray with me one more time as we get started? Jesus, today on this Palm Sunday, as we look at the story of the centurion and the story of you riding into Jerusalem, we see something so upside down and so different and so foreign, I think, to the way that we think about authority and power and love and what it means to be attached and connected. And in each of these gestures, we see our God, who is king, kneel to be near us. I think that's sometimes really hard for me to understand, and yet, Just today, it is the thing I need to hear the most. That you kneel to be near. That you step close and carry the cost of connection. And that you are good and powerful. Always both. It's going to help us to hear that story today. And to find in you the security that this world so often denies us. God, we pray these things in your wonderful and holy name. Amen. Amen, everybody. Uh, Welcome. Today is Palm Sunday. You'll notice uh, to, to participate, there's some palm leaves laid on the table and out in the hallway, there are some palm stems. I want to say this just right now at the beginning because I'll forget later. Uh, that if you would like to take one of those home as a symbol and representation of the things that we've talked about today, you are welcome to do that. The palm leaves that are on the table here or the stems that you can grab as you enter in. And on this day, this, this Palm Sunday day, we are also wrapping up our series, Brother, Sister. We've been in the series for all of Lent um, and have been just really moved and really powerfully working through this conversation. And this whole series has been in a really simple way, about exploring our spiritual attachment to God. That language comes from the world of attachment science, and attachment science loosely studies how do we relate to one another? How do we form connections with one another? How do we develop closeness 
with one another. And what we're learning from the world of attachment science is that we can relate to one another on a spectrum of secure to insecure. Sometimes the way that we relate to one another feels deeply safe, deeply confident, deeply rooted in a sense of self, and so then the connection is easy, or at least it's secure feeling. But sometimes, we all probably know this and have had these experiences, sometimes our connection to one another does not feel so secure. It doesn't feel as safe or as easy or as trusting. That movement towards another feels full of risk because the relationship or the style or the attachment that's happening in that moment is insecure. And just as that is true of how we can relate to one another, what we have found is that it's also true of how we relate to God. That we can relate to God in a spectrum of ways from deeply secure and deeply rooted and feeling safe and feeling confident. And then we can also, those same people, those of us who feel deeply confident in one moment, we can also have moments over here where our connection, our relationship, our attachment to God feels anxious or insecure or unsure, like it is risky to approach God, like it's risky to practice these spiritual disciplines, like it's risky to be seen or known. We can have a whole spectrum of ways of relating to God from secure to insecure. And so the question that we've been asking throughout this series is, how do we grow in our sense of secure attachment to God? How does that develop? How does that increase? How does our sense of self, our sense of connection, our sense of attachment get more stable and more rooted? Another way of saying this for like a more traditional way of saying this is how do we increase our faith? How do we grow in our faith? How do we become followers of Jesus who trust more, risk more, and have a deeper understanding? It's in some ways the same kind of conversation. So for some of us, the question is, how do we go from feeling deeply unsafe to feeling a bit more safe? For some of us, the conversation is, how do we stop chasing anxious kinds of relationship with God that are maybe marked by emotional highs or maybe they're marked by uh, intense like sprints and then they kind of fade away. It's like, how do we transition from that kind of anxious intensity that explodes and then downloads? How do we move into something that feels more stable and rooted? And then for some of us, it could be as simple as having a conversation about health to health. I, lo- I think about it this like, way. I love my marriage. I feel really strong and rooted in my marriage. But every day is a new opportunity to connect and to grow and to develop. And so maybe that's where some of us are in this conversation. We're just figuring out how to continue growing and continue developing in our sense of attachment. Now to help us have this conversation, the way that we have been doing it is we have been looking at these stories throughout the Gospels of encounters that Jesus has with other people. And those encounters, those experiences, those interactions reveal a lot about the ways that we connect with and seek attachment to God. So in one story that we began with, in the story of Nicodemus, we see a a religious figure whose world says, you can't be close to Jesus. You can't connect with this person. This person is an anomaly. This person doesn't belong here. And so Nicodemus sneaks away in the middle of the night to have some kind of encounter with Jesus. His emotions and his spirituality is so shut down that he has to sneak away from the world in which he lives to have a secret conversation. 
And we looked at the story of Jairus, whose daughter is literally dying and comes to Jesus full of legitimate anxiety and is invited by Jesus to rest. Right? In each of these moments, in each of these stories, we get to see an encounter of someone who brings their style, you could say, of attachment to Jesus, and we get to see how Jesus responds. But the thing that has been consistent throughout each of these stories is that the person encountering Jesus does so from a deeply anxious or insecure place. It's not a bad thing. It's just that their life tends to be upside down when they're encountering Jesus, right? Jairus' daughter's life is on the line. The bleeding woman who comes in that same story has been suffering a terminal illness for years. The woman who is caught in adultery is literally dragged before Jesus. And again, her life is on the line if this doesn't go well for her. So you have these deeply anxious, deeply frightening moments that drive the connection to God. And so we're always looking at sort of insecure environments and then insecure attachment styles. And so in this very last Sunday, we're going to look at a story that seems very different than the ones that have come before. Someone who approaches Jesus in seemingly deep sense of confidence in what seems like a deep sense of security. And it doesn't make any sense that this person has a deep sense of security. It doesn't make any sense that this person has a deep sense of confidence. In many ways, of all the people we've seen, he should not have it. He's an outsider to Jesus's world, and yet he has a deep sense of security. And so the question that we get to wrestle with today is, what does secure attachment to God look like? What does it look like for us to be securely connected and detached? Or I should say, what can it look like? So the story that we are looking at today comes from Matthew 8. And Matt read it for us really beautifully this morning. And in Matthew 8, starting in verse 5, we have this story of a Roman centurion who approaches Jesus. And in verse 5, it says this, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, Centurion, just for a little bit of historical context, is a Roman soldier and a Roman soldier commander. Centurion is a, a leader of a hundred soldiers. And it was the highest position that an enlisted officer or an enlisted person could get to in the Roman military. So you're like a real soldier, you've seen real combat, and you have risen through the ranks because people actually respect you to this position of a centurion, leading a hundred soldiers. I don't know what this person was like, but I imagine he's probably a pretty tough figure. Like a real soldier. A, probably a burly figure, a serious figure in the ancient world. And he comes to Jesus. And we may not see this as much in our own context, but when this person comes to Jesus, the anxiety of the moment would have been massive. Because a Roman centurion isn't just a commander in the military. He's the commander in a military that is occupying other people's territory. Rome has conquered Israel. Rome is the dominant empire of the day. Jesus is a subjugated force. And amongst Jesus' disciples are people who have dedicated their life to fighting Rome. You have zealots whose whole identity is fighting against the Roman Empire. The movement around Jesus often wants Jesus to pick up the sword and fight against Rome, which we'll talk about. So when a Roman centurion approaches, it's not like a cop is approaching. It's like someone who is actively a, like in an opposed military force. I was a 
this is, a, this is a very small version of this story, but I was uh, fishing last week, which is the thing I don't do a lot of. <laughs> so I'm not very good at it. So the whole, I'm already nervous to begin with. And I was like on the edge of a river. This is how you fish. And I had, I had like a sandwich in one hand. I was doing this. And all of a sudden I, I turned behind me and there's BLM agents, Bureau of Land Management agents, like fully decked out. I don't know what they were expecting to encounter in the woods of Utah. It's like full vests, guns, and they're standing there looking at me like this from on top of the mountain. And I turn around and immediately I felt so nervous. I had my license. I hadn't caught anything. I wasn't going to catch anything. I don't know why I felt nervous. I felt terrified that these guys were up there checking in on me. And that is just a very small and uh, insignificant kind of experience to what this moment would have been like when a centurion approached Jesus. You have that feeling when a person who is in this kind of authority approaches you, and then even more when they are the empire opposed to you. They could legitimately arrest Jesus. People are calling him a Messiah. They've arrested Messiahs before. Rome does crucify Jesus at the end of the story. So it's a frightening experience. And this person comes to approach Jesus. You can imagine the tension. You can imagine the anxiety of this moment. But instead of it being an anxious moment, the centurion comes to Jesus and he asks for help. The centurion says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. He's come to Jesus to ask for help. Which I imagine was another interesting layer to this strange conversation, that this foreign commander enters into your space the anxiety is high, and then all of a sudden he asks for help? Huh. And so Jesus does what Jesus often does when people ask him for help. He gets up to begin to move, but then the real surprising moment of the story happens. The centurion looks at Jesus and says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. So just say the word, and my servant will be healed. This moment is so surprising to everybody that is there that even Jesus, it says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, surprised. And he said to those that were following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in all of Israel. So the people of God, the ones who are chosen by God, the people who make up his disciples, I found no one amongst all of these fools who have the kind of faith that this guy does fascinating. Why do you think of all the characters that we've looked at or all the characters that we've seen in the gospel stories, does this person approach with such confidence? I think personally, I see this story of the centurion approach with such confidence, and I am tempted to look at him for an answer to the question. Right, to look at his character or his abilities or his features and wonder if there's some kind of key to having a healthy, secure relationship within his style, within his character. Maybe it's because he's a soldier. Maybe it's because his life is really together. Maybe it's because he's really self-disciplined. Maybe it's because he's very stable. Maybe it's because he, he like has some kind of understanding. And, oh, and that's what actually leads to secure attachment. And those things might be helpful. They might be true 
features of his connection, his relationship. But I think looking at the centurion for clues to healthy attachment to Jesus actually reveals something in me of some faulty thinking around what makes secure attachment. Here's what I mean by that, is that I think at the core of most of our unhealthy attachments is a set of myths that we believe about ourselves and about the world. And those myths, we learn them as survival techniques often. We learn them to navigate the world around us, and they begin to tell us a story about what does healthy connection look like? What does healthy relationship look like? What does healthy faith look like? I think there's three that I can fall into a lot. I think the first one that I feel is a myth of being good enough. That if I can just be good enough, my relationships will be secure. That I, if I can be a good enough spouse, or if I can be a good enough friend, or if I can be a good enough coworker, or if I can be a good enough Christian, then my faultless living will lead to a, a sense of less anxiety. Like if I could just be good enough, I won't experience the anxiety that relationships can often press on me. I think this is a tricky myth for us to navigate because the myth of good enough is full of good things. We do lots of good things in this story. We read our Bibles, we do the dishes, we clean the house, we complete the checklist. It actually matters that the activities are good so that we can say we are without fault. And the myth of being good enough places the weight of being good on you. So in your relationship, you must be good enough to hold it. I think the second myth that I can fall into that really affects me is the myth of being strong enough that if I can be strong enough in my relationships, then my relationships will be stable. So if I can be the rock, if I can show up, if I can carry the weight, it's like I'll be the, the planet whose gravitational ore brings everything near me. And no moons can get out of here because I am big enough that they stay connected around me. If I can just be strong enough, then I can carry everybody else's weight, and so then relationships will be stable. I don't know if this myth is... Uh, particularly impactful to people in ministry. But I was with a group of pastors this week, and one of them in, this, in that meeting had been in full-time ministry for 17 years and had never done a sabbatical. And a sabbatical in Christian tradition is like every seven-ish years, you go on like a three-month break. And the reason is because this job can be really difficult. And so you go on a rest period to heal, to renew, to get some space so you can enter back in refreshed. He hadn't done it. And he was visibly so tired. And he was like in the point of tears in this meeting. And I asked him if I could tell the story, but he was like in the point of tears in this meeting talking about how he hadn't had a rest and how he didn't know how to give things up and how he didn't know how to delegate. And as he began to unwind that story, finally he was like, I just feel like it's weak. And I hate feeling weak. The myth of being strong enough is the myth that you cannot be weak because you have to hold something. You have to hold all the things together inside of you for your relationships to be secure and stable. I think the third myth it's maybe almost the opposite of this one in some ways. It is the myth of if I can be small enough. 
if I can be small enough. If I can be small enough, and if my burdens can be light enough, or if I can carry them and never make them your problems, or never make my anxieties your problems, and never make my needs your problems, then we'll be able to stay near, because you'll never experience me as a weight, or as a burden, or as a problem, because I'm small enough to, to just be with you. Maybe if you never feel the weightiness of my existence, you won't be bothered that I am around. These kinds of myths, they get into us because of the very real experiences that we have had. They often become the tools that we use to survive, to find connection, to find attachment. They make our way into relationships with one another and they make our way into relationships with God. But the problem, as you can probably feel in your bones and probably have already felt in your bones as just a human being, is that these myths, as compelling as they are, and they are compelling, but as compelling as they are, they place just an impossible weight on our own shoulders. They place an impossible weight on our own shoulders. And, I, and if you're in this room, I think you have probably felt that weight. The feeling like there is no one to help you carry something because you have to be strong enough. Or that like near panic moment because there's too many good things to do in order to secure relationships. Or that feeling of I am disappearing because I have not been seen. There is a weightiness that these myths place on our shoulders, a feeling they place on our shoulders that is legitimately painful. Now, this might sound strange, but the Bible has language for this and words for this and ideas around this. And this is the part that might sound strange, but just stay with me. I think often the Bible talks about this dynamic using the word idolatry. Stay with me. We often think about idols as things that we make and give allegiance to. So money, career, relationships, jobs. In the Old Testament, it's often like a physical idol that's always being depicted as like a statue they make or a, like an image or a graven image that they make. And that is true. It's a true thing that happens. But I think one of the most painful forms, one of the most traumatizing forms of idolatry is what happens when we place the weight of connection, attachment, security on our own shoulders. And I call it idolatry because it forces you and I to play the role of God in our own lives. It forces us to carry a weight that we were not built for. When the Bible writers talk about idolatry, they name it as a problem for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons that, that we miss sometimes is they name it as a problem because of what it does to us. There's this very funny verse in uh, Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in ancient Israel, and he's talking about the nature of idolatry, and he says this on behalf of God in Hosea 4, verse 12. He says, My people consult a wooden idol and a stick speaks to them. And the thing that Hosea is naming is maybe one of the key problems that idol, idols have is that when you turn to an idol for connection or for relationship or for security, you are met in kind. 
So comically, when you bow down to a pile of wood, you are met by a pile of wood. But it's not always a pile of wood. The psalmist has a similar statement in Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8. The psalmist says this, But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And then here's the key moment. What happens to us? Those who make them become like them. And so will all who trust them. The problem with idolatry throughout Scripture is that we will be met by the kinds of gods that we worship. So if connection is the God that we are forced to apply with, and we meet connection by being good enough, then we will turn outwards and see that reflected back at us. We'll look to the idol that we have created and we'll see a reflection of our own insecurities, our own fears, our own habits. That's, at the end of the day, what idols are for the most part. They are our fears and our insecurities, our wounds, our traumas that have been deified. And we've been forced to carry them. The tricky thing about idols, though, is that they are genuinely difficult to disrupt because they are so connected to the thing that we long for the most or for that deep insecurity that we carry. They make these very compelling promises about the world, very compelling promises about what it looks like to live in this world. They offer us what we long for if we are willing to pay the cost. And I think this is what makes this moment with the centurion so interesting. The centurion who comes to Jesus works for the most powerful idol of the day, the Roman Empire. And Rome offers the world, and everybody who is willing to participate in it, Rome offers the world security through power and violence. And the centurion who approaches Jesus is a part of that world order. It's his job to enforce it. It is his job to make the security that Rome offers available through power and violence. That's his occupation. And I think you can kind of see it in the thing he says to Jesus. He comes to Jesus, says, you don't need to come to my house. And then he compares Jesus' authority to his own, saying this, I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and the servant does it. The centurion understands power and authority comes from Rome, the most powerful structure and system in the world. He understands what power and authority can look like. He understands what an actual powerful idol can do in the world. And he brings that to Jesus. He says, I can see that you are one with authority. But the question for us and for the centurion is not just does Jesus have authority, but it is how does he meet us with his authority? Does he meet us the same way that Rome does? 
The same way the centurion has been habituated to understand? Is it the same way the idols have met us? Is it the same way our needs for connection with these myths have met us? How does Jesus meet us? And the truth is, is that throughout the ancient world, people want Jesus to meet them like Rome does. This is maybe the chief struggle of Jesus' life, is that people want Jesus to operate just like Rome. So anytime a myth or, or a little rumor starts to spread that Jesus has healed somebody, you'll see the story that people will begin to gather around him and they'll begin to declare that he is the Messiah and they'll begin to say, like, Jesus, like, why don't you, you know, like, you got a lot of power. Why don't you just, like, use some of it against Rome? And Jesus will disappear. He'll hide away or he'll do a miracle and he'll be like, hey, don't tell anyone. Because he knows that if people hear it, they'll begin to pressure him into Rome. People want Jesus to operate the same way that Rome does. And every single time, Jesus pushes against it. And one of the most famous moments of Jesus pushing against it comes in Matthew chapter 20. Two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, their mom comes to Jesus on their behalf. Just super cool. And their mom asks Jesus, can my sons sit at your right and left hand in glory? And the question that she is asking is, can they rule with you? Can they ride into victory with you? Can they have the kind of authority that a Roman centurion would have? Can they have the kind of authority that a Roman general can have? Can they have that worldly, powerful authority? And Jesus responds to them pretty viscerally. And he goes on to explain this. He says, you know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around, just as we saw the centurion say. But that is not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave just as the human one, which is Jesus' favorite title to give himself, not Messiah, not King, human one. Just as the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. Jesus has this moment where he confronts the disciples who want the same kind of power the world around them offers. And he says, you've heard the myths of Roman power. You have seen it, lived with your own eyes as a people who are occupied, conquered. You've seen what that kind of power does. But I am here to serve and to give my life to liberate many. Jesus is not like Roman idols, idols of anxiety and power and control who promise much and demand more. So the thing about idols is that they force us to carry the cost of connection. Idols force us to carry the cost of connection. In attachment theory, our attachment styles most of the time develop when we are really young and we are most dependent. And the question becomes, how does the person we are dependent upon meet us? 
How are we greeted and how are we connected with when we are in states of dependence? And often insecure styles can develop when we are forced to carry the cost of our connection. When we have to figure out what does it look like to find a sense of self, a sense of connection, when we are not met by those we are dependent upon. As kids, the question we're asking is, does our caregiver come near? Does our caregiver kneel? Does our caregiver stay with us? Does our caregiver turn to look at us, to carry the weight of connection, to be near us? Or do they force us to do those things? See, idols force us to carry the cost of connection. They force us to come near. They force us to do the work. They force us to carry the weight, which is why we find ourselves often stuck in loops of the kind of anxious energy that an idol demands. We think we need to be good enough to find connection, and we look at the reflection, and what it says is you need to be good enough to find connection, and we find ourselves stuck in that place. But Jesus came to disrupt the loop that idols put us into. By paying the cost of connection and kneeling to be near us. By working so differently than the way that Rome does or the power structures of the day, not demanding in coercive style that everyone bends to his own will, but instead we see a God who kneels to be near. As Paul says in Philippians 2, a God who did not consider equality with some God to be grasped, but instead emptied themselves, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus came to disrupt our idol worship and our insecure attachment by paying the cost of connection. Jesus is the creator of all things, but he kneels to be near us. He takes on the form of a servant to be with us. Today is Palm Sunday, and of all days to talk about this story, today is maybe the most appropriate. Because on Palm Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and as he does, there are palm branches being waved to celebrate Jesus's victorious entrance. And palm branches are symbols in the ancient world for triumph and for victory and for celebration. But the scene doesn't make any sense when Jesus enters in to Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches because Jesus enters in not with an army. There's no trumpets, there's no soldiers, there's no knights in shining armor. There's just a dude on a donkey. (laughs) And it is that symbol and that moment that so perfectly captures the good news of Jesus. that Jesus is powerful, that he is entering this world to be king, that he does come to have authority as the centurion recognizes and as James and John recognizes. But this is the God who does not coerce us into paying the cost of connection, but instead carries the cost of connection himself and kneels to be near us. This is the truth that all of the people in the ancient world struggle to get the most about Jesus. He enters into Jerusalem and people are celebrating him in this moment, 
But no one really grasps how significant Jesus' work is in this moment or what he is trying to do. And his tensions begin to rise around Jesus in this week that we celebrate, of Holy Week. Well, people turn on him really quickly. The disciples around him who demanded that he be the conquering king, they flee. And the people in the crowd who wave the palm branches around celebrating the victory, well, they, they turn on him. When the anxieties and the insecurities, when they hit, you can see in the story people turn to those old gods for that sense of security. And those old gods turn on Jesus and they unleash the very worst against him. Death and violence. But what does Jesus do? He absorbs it. Every single iota of our worst anxiety, our worst fears, our worst securities, when they are weaponized against him, he absorbs every iota of it. And then turns to offer himself again. In Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says what happens in the resurrection. And then Eugene Peterson in the message uh, has a really beautiful translation. Jesus takes the very worst of what we can throw. And after we've exhausted the very worst that we can throw and after we've weaponized anxiety, Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants, the idols that we have turned to for attachment that have abused and made us carry the cost. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority. And he marched them naked through the street. Those things that held us do not have the power they claim. Monsieur, Jesus is the God with all power who gave all of it up to be near us, who comes closer than a brother, who unmasks those things that we often trust in and carries the very cost of our connection. What does this have to do with secure attachment? Everything, because it's just not on you. Your sense of attachment and connection is not a weight you were meant to carry. It is not a burden that was meant to be placed on your shoulders. It is not a pressure that you were supposed to find. And the thing that gives us a sense or a chance to risk in security is to know that our God, who is powerful, will carry the cost of connection and will kneel to be near us every time and every moment so that we, as the author of Hebrews 4.16 says, can approach the throne in confidence. Or as Kanye West would say, what's a king to a God? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you kneel to be near us. You kneel to be near us. And you pay the cost of connection, whatever it is. And wherever we come from and whatever that cost is, you are willing to pay it. 
whether it's the fact that we have learned to trust ourselves so often, we don't even know what it looks like. You're willing to pay that cost to be near us. God, today as we hear this story and as we gather at the table and as we sing your songs, but the thing that gets driven home to us is that you kneel to be near. And then nothing can stop that and nothing can separate us from the love of you. With that truth, send us in your peace today. In your name we pray. Amen. Miss you, take a moment to reflect and to pray. And after that moment of reflection, we'll continue to worship. And when you're ready, we invite you to the table. For the first time in two years, we have actual communion bread and juice on the table. We also have sealed elements as well. For those of you who still would like to participate in sealed elements, both are made available to you. When you're ready, you can come to the table. Break the bread, take it into the cup, or take the sealed element. You can do it at the table. You can go back to your seats. But as you gather at the table, the thing that I would ask you to remember and the thing I'd ask you to celebrate and to participate in and to reflect in today is that Christ pays the cost for our connection. When Jesus gives the meal to his disciples, he says, my body was broken, my blood was spilt for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that I have made space for you at this table. Remember that nothing can separate you from the love that I have for you and that I have secured for you. Remember that nothing can disrupt the security that I provide for you. Remember that you're welcome here, no matter what you bring, no matter what anxiety, no matter what insecurities, no matter how often that spins you, this is still secure. So, Monsieur, when you're ready, I invite you to the table.